0: Now, not all your material comes uh, from, the, from the news. Is that right? You know, no, you, some you... of
1: my material comes, my strongest material comes from real life. Real life? Like for instance, today, I was driving in a, a car. Mm-hmm. You were kind enough to bring a car to bring this old chunk of coal here to the studio. <laughs> we, send, we send cars for our guests, yes. Yeah, so I got in it and that's, I, you know, I get material that way, so my driver... What do you mean? What, what, how do you get material that way? You get in the car and what happens? Uh, my driver tells me a joke. <laughs> the driver we sent to pick you up told you a
0: joke? Yeah. And you're gonna tell it now on the show? Yeah,
1: that's how I get a lot of my material. <laughs> okay,
0: why don't we just have him on next time?
1: Uh, that guy, you, yeah, that guy, no, wait till you hear me do it. <laughs> So the guy's, he goes, uh, Uh uh, I say, uh, I'll be the guy. Uh, A moth, (laughs) a moth goes into a podiatrist's office. A moth goes into a podiatrist's office. You are correct. (laughs) A moth goes into a podiatrist's office Mm -hmm. and uh, the podiatrist's office says, what's the problem? And the moth says, what's the problem? Where do I begin, man? He goes, I go to work for uh, Gregory Alinovich. And uh, all day long I work. (laughs) Honestly, doc, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. I don't even know if Gregory Alinovich knows. He only knows that he has power over me and that seems to bring him happiness. But I don't know, I wake up in a malaise and I I walk here and there. The podiatrist says, oh yeah? The moth goes, yes, and he goes, uh, at night, I, I sometimes wake up, and I turn to some old lady in my bed that's on my arm. A lady that I once loved, Doc. I, I don't know where to turn to. My youngest, Alexandria. <laughs> she fell in the, in, the, in the cold of last year. Mm-hmm. The cold took her down as it did many of us. <laughs> and my other boy, And this is the hardest pill to swallow, Doc. My other boy, Gregorio (laughs) Ivinolitovich. I no longer love him. Mm -hmm. As much as it pains me to say, when I look in his eyes, all I see is the same cowardice that I... Th- that I catch when I take a glimpse of my own face in the mirror. <laughs> if only the cowardice was stronger, then perhaps, <laughs> perhaps I could bring myself to reach over to that cocked and loaded gun that lays on the bedside behind me. <laughs> and in this hellish facade, once How long a drive was this? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Do you live in the valley? Where do you live? <laughs> Please, sorry. He says, doc. Sometimes I feel like a spider, even though I'm a moth. Just barely hanging onto my web with an everlasting fire underneath me. I'm not feeling good. And so the moss, the the doctor says, moth, man, you're troubled. But you should be seeing a psychiatrist. Why on earth did you come here? And then the Ma said, "'Cause the light was on." (laughs)
3: once again to another episode of left unread um this is a a fun one for us um today as always it's cam and my co-host evan um we're joined by alex from uh providence leftist radio podcast how's it going man hey
0: it's going pretty good how are you doing we're doing well we're doing well
3: thank you so much for uh for making the time to be with us i know we kind of just did this off air so (laughs) don't feel like you need to fake it but um we're happy to have you
0: yeah, I'm happy to be here. always happy to talk about the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Actually, that sounds like I think it's a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> Never mind.
2: yeah I know, right? Right.
0: <laughs> always yeah. happy to
4: celebrate the yeah. monumental. It was, yeah, unfortunately, it was the moment our champion lied dead on the battlefield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Uh,
3: the day that Little Mac beat King Hippo. <laughs> um, yeah. So, as we've sort of just said um, Today's episode is is a particularly interesting one uh, We will be talking about uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union um, So, Alex, I know this is your field of study, right? You're working on your PhD, or you've got your PhD
0: is I'm working on it still, yeah, yeah.
3: So, uh, needless to say, there are going to be multiple points here where um, you are more than welcome to 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 either correct or or, or uh, adjust the course of our explanation because neither of us can claim that. But um, <laughs> so uh, so yeah. So uh, <laughs> leading up to this episode, Evan and I, at Alex's suggestion, we read a couple of different books um, that sort of illustrate, I guess, two of the uh, leading sort of approaches to the study of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, uh-huh. And I think it's safe to say that this is one of the most sort of shocking events, uh, certainly of the 20th century, but really, I think, in, in global geopolitical history, period. Um, kind of unbelievable to, you know, after decades of sort of Cold War nonsense and uh, and what seemed like sort of a, a an eternal... Struggle between you know these two global superpowers um, our beautiful home nation and uh, and the <laughs> USSR um, it sort of felt like all of a sudden overnight one of the most powerful nations on the planet was gone and um, so we, we we you know decided that this was this was obviously worth diving into um, and through our research, reading these these two sort of books, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, I guess I, I think it would be fair to say that you can kind of boil down, if you if you had to be you know super general with it, you can kind of boil down the two approaches to Soviet collapse from a, histori- a, a historiographical standpoint into two sort of camps, which is you know the camp that thinks that or posits that Soviet collapse is really directly attributable to um, sort of late period perestroika politics, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, westernization and then the sort of other camp which you tend to hear more of in discourse here in the states which is sort of this uh, oh well it was a doomed experiment You know, it was, always, it was <laughs> yeah. always bound to fail and it was only a matter of time and you know, maybe perestroika kind of pushed things over the edge but um, the Soviet Union was sort of a doomed concept to begin with. Um, does, that, does that seem fair?
0: Yeah, the the I mean that's exactly uh it. it's usually seen as was this a a moment of um 10 years that led to collapse or was it sort of a, a longer process of collapse but they're usually termed in in or framed in terms of the totalitarian debate uh in historiography mm-hmm. which would be uh Stephen Kotkin as sort of the the heir to that. It was a lot more totalitarian leaning before Stephen Kott King. I mean, during the the Cold War, the way that people talked about the Soviet Union was um, much worse. But the basic idea of that being that the Soviet Union was an ideological state uh, who premised its economics and its social structure around Marxism, uh, mm-hmm. and that and the idea is that over time Marxism as they were practice it, practicing it, kind of gets frozen in time, so that the cultural modifications that happened over time, uh, the political, geopolitical changes in the world, where the Soviet Union was unable to respond to those things because of its ideology, uh, and that's that's the totalitarian one. That's the one that sees uh, there's a flaw in the Soviet system from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. as you said. And then there's the, the more revisionist historiography um, that tries to consider social issues and social realities, lived experience a little bit more uh, in order to say, well, actually, uh, society played a major role in what happened, even if they didn't always see it for what it yeah. was. Right. Um, and this is sort of the, the Marsh Lewin uh, take of it, too. Mm-hmm. Awesome
3: yeah so uh that i think segues us nicely into the two books that we did the bulk of our research with um and obviously there's always yeah. you know peripheral uh research that we do for different dates and names and things like that but um yeah. evan do you want to uh do you want to talk a little bit about the book that you read for today
4: yeah yeah so i read uh, Moshe levine's uh the gorbachev phenomenon and you know as alex said you know, he talks a lot about the social aspect to the collapse, you know, that there were the, uh, these underlying social currents that actually, you know, influenced uh, the Soviet Union from the ground up. Not necessarily, um, you know, that it was all top down or atomized like that. Uh, and he also but he also kind of, uh, you know, he talks about too how that the way that Stalin had configured the um, state party economy apparatus uh, also kind of doomed it right from there as well. Um, so, yeah, in his, uh, in his introduction, he says that uh, while under Stalin, the state loomed large, the idea of the Soviet Union being totalitarian uh, was actually a misappropriation of the term. Uh, he argues that it was transferred from Nazi Germany as the enemy in World War II to the Soviet Union during the Cold War, despite the fact that the state was thawed by Khrushchev's de-Stalinization and further underwent social reform uh, reforms during Brezhnev's long tenure as general secretary and Kosygin's as premier. Even while Brezhnev seemed not to notice, and so while the state controlled the economy, it did not control the lives of the people or social interactions as much as American propaganda would argue. Uh, he argues that this misappropriation of the term leads to Western scholars not actually understanding what is happening in the USSR until it is already over, or at, you know, at the very least, at the eleventh hour. So yeah, so with this lack of understanding, it leads into the trap of interpreting the course of history. ...of interconnected social systems as being mere accidents begotten by the stupidity of a king, a queen, or a fool. In actuality, the society at large, thought to be atomized in the West, instead exerted pressure on the Soviet state... ...and that this required a response from the leaders. Um, So while many predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union first during World War II... ...and then after Stalin's death, and then the prediction that it could only stay afloat if a second Stalin came to power... Uh, The system continued on through a succession of general secretaries and leaders, lasting another 40 years after the death of Stalin. The truth is, the long life and eventual collapse of the Soviet Union can only be truly understood by looking through its entire history and the various bodies that made up the country and how they interacted with each other.
0: Remember that whole thing, like, a few uh, years ago, in which all these uh, people blamed Russia for hacking into... The American election, which you know, it could very well have been some like rogue Russian that lived in uh, uh, I don't know, uh, some Pskov or something like that. uh, You know, who who just is really good at hacking and did it. Um, And it and it just kind of strikes me as ironic that you know Americans throw up their hands and, and reconsider Russia as the enemy again. Where, yeah. where as you kind of hinted towards, and as as Lewin gets to, um, there's an enormous amount of Western pressure and Western influence going on in the Soviet Union in the 1980s. A whole bunch mm-hmm. of propaganda campaigns coming mm-hmm. in through St. Petersburg, uh, influencing places like Latvia and Lithuania, who are on the borderlands, uh, mm-hmm. who, who therefore have easier access to the West, and the West has easier access to them. Uh, and it's just like, you know, there, there's that whole like post-war trope. That afterward, that uh, Reagan, Reagan like won, right? Like, like Reagan pushed <laughs> yeah, yeah. the Soviet Union the economically to the to the to the breaking point. But, but, I mean, to do that required an enormous amount of uh, like quiet imperialism, almost <laughs> propaganda yep. influence. Um, at least in the in the non-Russian states in particular, in the Baltic states, and even in Central Asia.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. From what I understand, too, even, like, Boris Yeltsin, he was really kind of, like, America's, like, candidate. And, you know, he was, like, the big proponent of shock doctrine once, you know, he did take over in Russia. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I do think it's funny that there's this whole big thing about, you know, Russian interference, as if America hasn't been interfering in, like, these governments for fucking decades Right, and now you can
3: see the narrative is kind of flipped with this whole, um, you know, right-wing election fraud, you know, misinformation yeah. campaign, and they're essentially beginning to make the same arguments, uh, but just flipping it to China, right? So now it's China yeah. uh, helped Joe Biden, you know, secure victory, and the whole thing is funny. It's just like picking a picking a uh, a proxy on the other side of the yeah, world yeah. to like blame for. You know, it's just the pursuit of, a, of another Cold War opponent. You know, that's we yeah. got so used to having that um, yeah. to, to fall back on, to blame, you know, anytime yeah. something went wrong or didn't go as expected that now I really feel like a lot of folks, not only within the American political sphere, but, you know, everyday people who are just sort of participating in it or observing it, um, or just like you know, commenting in Reddit message boards, really can't <laughs> help themselves, and they have to kind of fall back yeah. on that um, Cold War ideology, where it's like it's Russia, it's China, it's somebody, somebody's trying to undermine us. Um,
4: and yeah, it, we it, do a well enough job of that ourselves. Sure, right. Ourselves. I think that it points to like yeah. a really,
3: really kind of uh, depressing, almost like a cultural psychosis in the American yeah. zeitgeist, where people just we we got so used to having some sort of insurmountable foe that when that foe at the very least, changed and, you know, more likely kind of just disappeared. Um, it's like we haven't really known what to do with ourselves since, you know?
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which is kind yeah, I of depressing. There, there always has to be some kind of enemy for for uh, the United States in whatever capacity. It's just I, I, I try to, like, encourage people in the articles I write or anything to kind of flip the script because – there's that whole notion of late imperialism. I don't really use that term. I mean, late capitalism, sorry. I don't really use that term all that much because I'm not sure what it means. But, you know, someone recently said uh, maybe it means that we're almost at the end. Really optimistically, yeah. maybe we're at the end. But, no, like, <laughs> thinking historiographically, right, about what you just said about Moistlone, or even, as we'll get to, Stephen Kotkin... Um, if the american empire does collapse right let's say it let's say it happened tomorrow because in the soviet union it pretty much just did you woke up one morning and it was gone um uh let's say that happens 20 30 years out how are historians going to write about the collapse of the american empire is it a long-term process that began with I don't know Ronald Reagan or even further back, uh, yeah. uh, Dwight Eisenhower or something, or has or is it since 2016? Right, the the very recent past. So I'm interested in kind of in in getting historians of the Soviet Union to think about this question: how you would write such a history for the United States if it were to happen? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, to me, it certainly seems like the long-term approach makes sense. And so I guess that that leads us into the other book that we sort of used to fill out this episode, um, which was Stephen Kotkin's uh, Armageddon Averted, um, which is a history of the Soviet social collapse. uh, And he frames it as a relatively long-term event. Um, You know, he frames it from like 1970. The book was written in 2001. So, you know, at the time of writing, he was sort of, of the opinion that the collapse was still sort of an ongoing process that, you know, even though some of the names and flags and actors had changed, the continuing process of uh, change inside, you know, all the former Soviet republics was was still kind of ongoing. And I mean, in that respect, so here's the thing, I grappled a lot with this book, because there are points that to me made sense. The problem is the whole thing is sort of peppered with this really kind of muddy and almost random like pretty obvious like anti-socialist rhetoric where you know on the one hand he'll be he'll be making the claim that you know of course you can't you know pin the collapse on any one particular issue and it's this really ongoing thing and um he explores a lot of the sort of post-soviet uh russian problems in a way that was pretty compelling uh but he does sort of espouse this you know doomed from the start um, failed experiment narrative, which is, is pretty upsetting. And I, I actually highlighted a little quote um, right from his introduction, um, where he says, virtually everyone seems to think that the Soviet Union was collapsing before 1985. They are wrong. Uh, most people also think the Soviet collapse ended in 1991. Wrong again. These points become readily apparent when one examines the period of 1970 to 2000 as an integrated whole, tracing the arc of Soviet economic and political institutions before and after 91, and when one combines a view from deep inside the system with a sober sense of the precise role of the wider context. Um, So that's like his, his, his stated goal, right? And then kind of immediately after that, he's like, but yeah, no. This, this, it was, it was always fucked up. It was always gonna, it was always <laughs> gonna crash and burn. So I, I don't know. I found it, I found it kind of a difficult uh, slog getting through it, mainly because I, I found it really hard to kind of pin down exactly what he was trying to convey. Um, I felt like it really danced back and forth, but there was this sort of consistent line throughout of like, yeah, but also. Freedom triumphed and it's good that it collapsed even as he's describing sort of like the the horror and confusion of like That the general public experienced as this society sort of Imploded, you know, so I I I don't I don't know if you have any 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 way to elucidate that But I found it. I just found this to be like a really kind of mind-boggling account
0: Yeah So Stephen Kotkin's view of collapse—it uh, really emanates. It centers on Moscow and the things that happened in the Kremlin. Uh, mostly, you know, the the people in the Kremlin's inability to react to to economic crises or or even political or social crises that that arose from 1970 to to whenever um, and. Uh, as you pointed out, there there does seem to be this sort of uh, I don't triumphant narrative, right? Where where the United States, um, you know, for better or for worse, did end up triumphing in 19 or after 1991, uh, you know. And it's interesting. His periodization is interesting too, beginning in the 70s and ending. Uh, in the mid-90s in privatization, he sort of gets into that a little bit, but then it stops. And I think that we we kind of know why it stops, because the, the privatization that happened actually destroyed Russia uh, mm-hmm. fundamentally. Um, and so with Kotkin, again, it goes back to that totalitarian uh, historiography where he, he wrote a, a much longer book, called um, Magnetic Mountain. It's all about the, the construction of the metal city, Magnitogorsk, um, that happened under Stalinism and how, you know, uh, people through constructing the city kind of also were in the process of trying to construct socialism uh, or, or at least we're being told that you're constructing socialism through constructing the city uh, under Stalin. So he is very concerned with ideology and the place of ideology in the regime. So just speaking from a broad historiographic purpose, like what is Stephen Kotkin's purpose, um, it's hard to see these totalitarian arguments with any other purpose except trying to discredit Marxism in some way. Um, Trying to point out that there are fundamental flaws in doctrinal Marxism that, because the Soviet Union tried to adhere to that, uh, it was a failure from the beginning, right? And 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 you can see this in beginning in the 1970s. You can see it, according to him, all the way back to Stalinism in these uh, forced constructions mm-hmm. of of what he calls speaking Bolshevik, of becoming a socialist being. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. That's Cotkin's take.
3: Yeah, and it's 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 funny because a lot of the time when you're reading him, um, you can almost get lost in, you can almost lose sight of that, right? Like he'll almost reach a point where you're like, um, for example, he 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 writes pretty admiringly of. Uh, some of these figures like uh, Mikhail Gorbachev um, and he actually it, it makes a lot more sense but he, he kind of waxes poetic about Boris Yeltsin in this book a lot too and um, there are times where he's it almost seems like he's enamored with the notion that some of these people were striving for this this ideologically pure um, form of socialism and how they could achieve it and then he'll just, you know, about face and really quickly be like, and that's why he was a moron. Right. Like it's <laughs> um, and that's I just found that really tough to grapple with it, it. It felt really insidious. You know, it feels like there's a very clear sort of um, sort of propagandist bent to it. Um, And I, you know what? I didn't really read much about the book that I was reading, but I feel like this is a, this is like I feel like this book was really written to sort of. Uh, proselytize to the American public and sort of make people feel like mm-hmm. good about what they're seeing when they see, you know, news reports coming out of Russia, and especially, you know, in 2000, 2001, the late 90s, and seeing how tough the people there are having it. It's like, no, don't worry. Like, there's hope. There's a future. Uh, uh, freedom won out. And even though things seem tough, it's actually better. And yeah. Um, yeah, even though they had a massive
4: drop off in right. life expectancy. Yeah.
3: yeah, I mean, and there was this really kind of, kind of telling point towards the start of the book where he's he's talking about, you know, how hopeful this new Russian republic looks and how things are really shaping up and how one day hopefully they'll have a GDP the size of Portugal's. And it's like, why is that? You know, this was you know one of the most. Uh, uh, powerful, certainly influential nations or collection of nations uh, on planet Earth like a few years ago, why should a GDP the size of Portugal's be something to be excited about? Like, is it just because it's a free market GDP? And like, so therefore it's <laughs> yeah. inherently better than, you know, a controlled economy, even if it's like miserable and everyone under it is suffering and in bread lines and, you know, the, the culture is being sold off wholesale. It's It's really kind of upsetting to see that uh, the attempt to twist that outcome into something positive that people should feel good about or that people should see and say, wow, like, freedom really triumphed here. Uh, uh, individual rights and the free market really, really did their thing and, and good for Russia, you know. it's it's, And so this whole book is sort of framed from that, you know, angle. And it's, it's man, it was just, it was tough.
1: Start wearing purple for me now. All your sanity and wits, they will all vanish, I promise, it's just a matter of time, so yeah!
0: I think another part of it, and one that uh, Lewin is not subject to, is that when the Soviet Union collapsed—in you just assigning a date, 1991—when um, it when it disappeared, it's a better word—there uh, were a whole bunch of scholars from the United States uh, and from Western Europe who were going abroad to Russia to do their research to do whether darker research or journalism or whatever and there's a there's a process in in living and studying at a foreign university where you know you typically live in a dormitory you, you interact with uh, native students there other international students and you're kind of exposed to uh, a culture that is very foreign and so you know my this is just my opinion that I'm sort of writing with, uh, knowing and having heard from other people, is that, you know, if you go to a place like that, to Russia in 1993, 1994, let's say, for example, it's one of at this point it's you're expecting to see the post-Soviet capital, right, the post-Soviet Union, but it's actually the most economically impoverished that Russia had ever been ever. Uh, narc- narcotics use is like skyrocketing amongst the youth and so you go there and you make friends with people in this dormitory that you grow to really love and appreciate and you're sitting there wondering like how the hell did you get here like how is it that this country just has pretty much uh, uh, subjected you to this living the standard of living right yeah. and you kind of you want to explain how the people that you love and care about that you've met got there, and so your narrative of history is instantly from the beginning, before even putting pen to paper, looking at a declensionist narrative, right? You want to explain how we got to this negative point. Uh, maybe maybe 2000 is optimistic. Maybe it will be better, but all we know is that in the 1990s, when I was there, you know, speaking uh, as a mm-hmm as somebody, I wasn't there in the 90s, but hypothetically, uh, I want to explain how it is that we got there. And so you either look at this long-term Soviet economic disaster that happened, according to Cochrane, uh, which is why Russia is where it is right now, or, um, you know, you look at other factors. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what other factors, but that declensionist narrative in soviet historiography has been with us since before the 90s way before the 90s because it even existed in the soviet union um they're trying to kind of reverse that now to say well what happens if we if we don't look at the soviet union as such a disaster uh, or we don't look at collapse as such a good thing for people
4: yeah
3: right yeah, I mean, uh so to the point about those those factors that we discussed um this is another area where I I found reading Kotkin to be kind of a struggle because there are points to, to me, and, you know, having a, a relatively limited understanding of this whole, I mean, this is far and away the most research I've done into this topic ever in my life, right? So it's not like I have, you know, this ingrained understanding of um, all the factors entering into the Soviet collapse. Um, but some of the things he talks about, like, for example, like the uh, the big oil windfall in the late 60s, oh. right, when they strike oil in Siberia and how, how much of a boost that is to the economy. Now, obviously, he frames that in a way that I think is kind of harmful, where he's talking about um, – <clears throat> You know, see, this is evidence that, you know, the only reason the Soviet Union was able to survive is because they struck oil in Siberia and they suddenly had this valuable commodity to sell off, you know, to foreign countries and also to fuel their own industrialization, right? And if it weren't for that, uh, if it weren't for the benefits that they reaped from interacting with capitalist countries, they they would have collapsed in the 70s, right? That's the point that he's making. And so, well, to me, you know, as I said, somebody who's... Relatively unversed in this subject matter. I mean, even I can see that that's uh, a really flawed take. Um, Evan and I were kind of talking earlier about like, you know, socialism yeah. doesn't preclude you from from participating in global trade, right? And there's yeah, a lot it's of like
4: every country benefits from their natural resources. Sure,
3: <laughs> um, but at the same time, like, it does seem compelling to me to to look at that massive influx of, of foreign dollars and the sort of mixed bag good and bad that did towards allowing the country to industrialize, allowing for there to be this sort of broadening educated class of more specialized workers in the country. Um, and then when that, that source of, you know, foreign income or, or whatever trade income dried up, you kind of immediately see this sort of The forming of this massive sort of rust belt across central Russia where there's this immediate decline in quality of life and people are really feeling, you know, desperate and people are feeling like they're having. Now, again, this is this is, you know, through the lens of a guy who's kind of foaming at the mouth to see this whole thing fall apart. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I do wonder about, you know, factors like that, like. Because it does seem that's not something that you can put squarely at the feet of, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev. That's not something that you can blame on Perestroika. Um, so, how? I guess my question is: How prevalent do you think the factors, s- focusing maybe specifically on that, but factors like that, played into so things in the the sixties, seventies, eighties, prior to Gorbachev coming to power? Um, do you feel like that's like a valid uh point to to look at when we're talking about the collapse of the Soviet Union? Or do you feel like um and we we're totally just entering into like personal ideology here, but do you feel like that's that's sort of uh inaccurate or like an invalid point of interest?
0: I think when you're like when you're examining it from Moscow, from, from the Kremlin, and that's right. where you see uh everything emanating. And to a certain extent, it is. I mean, policy is more or less emanating in Moscow. What you're missing is, like, the local contingencies and dynamics and and different things going on. So, no doubt, I mean, of course, finding oil in Siberia helped the Soviet economy. Uh, The war in Afghanistan hurt the Soviet economy in fundamental ways. Uh, But that doesn't mean that the people in the Soviet Union uh, failed to or stopped believing in socialism uh, as as an ideology and in fact right up until 1989 there's a poll taken in which 80% of Russians still favor socialism but they just want reforms right so yeah, yeah. This, whole, this whole myth that 1991 was the destruction of socialism it's not true it's just that uh, you know um, the communist party of the Soviet Union was dis- disemboweled, really, and allowed uh, allowed for somebody, a populist, as you say, like Boris Yeltsin, to come to power. So so these things are definitely important. Does that mean that a state collapses from them? I mean, the United States had an oil crisis in the 1970s. The United States yeah. just recently left Afghanistan and also disastrously left uh, Vietnam in, in the 1970s. And so... This is what I mean about how would historians write about this if the United States were to collapse tomorrow? Would yeah, you look yeah. at those same factors and say, okay, that's the root of collapse, uh, or would it be something more immediate? Did you know there? There's a kind of chicken or the egg question of society or culture, right? Which one comes mm-hmm. first? Uh, and uh, I think that it's kind of neither and both, right? In order, in order to have a collapse, a disappearance of the Soviet Union like you did, like you had beginning in 1988-89 uh, with the withdrawal of the Baltic Republics and then Uzbekistan and, and the dominoes kind of falling, um, you you have to have a shift in cultural and ideolo- social ideology and perception too.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you have to have enough people within Latvia or Lithuania to vote against the Communist Party of Latvia and Lithuania. Um, you can't just. You don't just have people from the Kremlin. All of a sudden, deciding, all right, this is, you know, we can let them leave now. Um, so there's definitely a social factor in this whole thing that, in my view, Stephen Kotkin is leaving out.
3: Right. He um, basically ignores the entire.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. But but, Moist Lewin. Talks about the social factor.
4: Yeah, yeah, he has much more of a, you know, a much more of, a, I guess, like a materialist perspective on it, where he really breaks down a lot of the, like, material factors that are, are you know, over time leading to it. You know, so he starts off, uh, you know, by talking about, like, czarist Russia and how, you know, it was a largely agrarian society. Um, you know, a lot of, like, you know, peasant estates and, like, small homesteads and things like that. And, you know, after Lenin took power... His new economic policy did not uh, change, you know, much in terms of how agrarian and backwards the country was. Uh, So once the peasants had taken over during the revolution and after the Civil War, it was still oriented to family-owned homesteads. Um, And, you know, their output was mediocre and could not sustain the country, so this is really something that had to be, you know, fixed. Um, But, you know, the task wouldn't be an easy one, and there were separate paths to choose, which is whether to use the power of the state to correct the backwards agrarian life of the young Soviet Union, or to move slowly and cautiously in creating the conditions needed to peel off the remnants of the capitalism that the revolution had ended. You know, Lenin had said that the uh, the peasant farm engendered capitalism in the bourgeoisie uh, permanently, every day, every hour, spontaneously and massively. Which, um, you know, for what's worth this fear in the emergent Soviet system that the peasant homestead br- uh uh, Homestead countryside breeds capitalism is actually in opposition to Marx, who believed that markets were only a premise for capitalism and that, and that it is in cities themselves that capitalism emerges. Uh, but by the time Lenin's new economic policy began, the Soviet Union was still largely a backwater. The cities were small, the buildings in the cities lagged far behind the infrastructure of the West, and illiteracy was rampant. So it took a dramatic shift in policies in 1928 to transform the country under the guidance of Stalin. And, uh, and terror was heavily utilized by the state to accomplish the goal, uh, these goals. So while the changes to the country were largely controlled and planned by the state and its actors, there was also massive immigration to the cities from the countryside that created a spontaneity to the project. And it's really this urbanization that, uh, um, that Moshe really, like, he talks about it a lot in, in this book. Um, You know, and the transformation of Soviet society coincided with the transformation in the state and the burgeoning bureaucratic system that was growing faster than the abilities of those in power, creating an unstable bureaucracy of small despots that were learning on the job. And that this unstable nature of the growth of the Soviet system led to ever more autocratic restraint by the police apparatus in the country. You know, the paranoia was kind of like baked right into the entire system. And that this improvisational nature of the early Soviet state as massive growth and influx coincided with this burgeoning bureaucracy, it would harden and become tightly wound and built into the state as it continued to exist long after Stalin. You know, so as an example, he talks about the collective farms that ended up appearing nothing like how Soviet authorities initially wanted them to appear, as there was a massive reaction to the Soviet collectivization efforts and a slaughter of cattle by the farmers as they fled to the cities. In the end, the Soviet state would have to acquiesce to some of the demands and allow these families to maintain a private plot and cow. Uh, So this reaction and repelling of the state was obvious in all manner of Soviet society, including culture and ideology. Everywhere it went, the state was met with resistance and forced to adapt and improvise depending on the demands of the people. So... Uh, Chauncey Harris, an American geographer, described the pace of urban development in the, in the 1930s of the Soviet Union as record-breaking at its speed and intensity. The annual growth in the cities uh, from 1926 to 1939 was 6.5%, peaking at over 10% by the late 1930s. Uh, so this correlated to a share in population from 18 to, 30, uh, to 32%. And uh, in the post-war period, the USSR would see yet more growth, with the share of the urban population getting to 49% in 1960 and finally to 58% in 1972. By 85%, 65% of citizens in the USSR lived in cities, and 70% of the citizens of Russia itself were in the cities. And, you know, he he talks a lot about how this was... uh, sort of like a, a traumatic uh, growth for the Soviet Union, that this huge influx into the cities, both from the countryside into cities, and then from smaller cities into bigger cities, had like all of these compounding traumatic effects, you know, certain things like you would get these like small communities of like ethnic minorities, and that they would develop like their own kind of personality in the cities. Um, and you know, this entire increase, you know, it uh, coincided both with the new cities being founded and these megacities of over one million exploding in existence. Uh, so there were three of them in 1959, but by 1980, there were 23. So by the end of the 70s, the movement from rural to urban centers was tapering off, but still there was quite a substantial number of people moving from smaller cities to larger cities. Thus, the post-war Soviet period was a period of massive social change, even despite outside viewers framing it as a period of stagnation.
0: Yeah, I think there's like there's a, there's a lot of really great points, but I think that Lewin's great points are mostly as they relate to uh, 1980 to 1988, right? The yeah, yeah, yeah. the the late Brezhnevism and Perestroika. I think that that is fundamentally where his strong point is. Um, but the the sort of long durée argument of the Soviet Union that he tries to make. Um, I don't think is all that applicable any anymore necessarily, because now, for example, we know that um, that whole idea that Russia that that pre-Soviet Russia Tsarist Russia was backward mm-hmm. uh, that it's kind of a myth because we we understand that from from 1860 to uh, 1890 uh, industrialization, in Russia, in Tsarist Russia, is taking off like crazy. They go something yeah, yeah. from being uh, the sixth, sixth industrial power to the fourth from mm-hmm. from 19 uh, from 1860 to 1890, and the only overshadowed by the United States and Germany in terms of yeah, yeah, yeah. pace of development. Um, and and the, the bad part about this is that the Bolsheviks also accepted this myth because it played into their propaganda really well, right? They could say we are legitimate because the czarism was backward, uh, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and we're we're bringing the Soviet people into a new modernity. Uh, the sa- a same argument that that Western historians continued to make about uh, mm-hmm. pre-Soviet Russia—that it was somehow backwards—and the the uh, the same thing applies to the demographic shifts, right? There mm-hmm. we know. For example, that Moscow and St. Petersburg in particular, the populations in those cities as industrial centers in the pre-Soviet era were also starting to balloon. Um, Leopold Hampson wrote uh, entire works about how, to a certain extent, what the Bolsheviks did in St. Petersburg and Petrograd is impossible without the demographic shift that happened in the city. Uh, and then that the point about ethnic ethnic. Communities that he makes that develop in the city. There's mm-hmm. there's this other historiographical trajectory it usually works within the totalitarian debate that uh, all of these nascent forms of ethnic uh, uh, Particularity that showed up mm-hmm. in workspaces or in cities were like foreshadowing the collapse of the Soviet Union um, uh, You know you get enough Latvians together Throw them in a room of Russians and, you know, the Latvians are going to stick to each other. Right. And that's, that might be true. I mean, it, it's true in the United States, unfortunately, that if you throw a bunch of white people together and put them in a black party, the white people are going to kind of huddle around each other for, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Uh, that doesn't mean that all of the people in the room didn't identify with being socialist, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Because socialist identity is different than national identity. In the Soviet Union, it's supposed to supersede national yeah. and ethnic identity. Right. So so the, these myths that, uh, that these uh, pre-perestroika manifestations of ethnic communities and, and identities, it all plays into uh, this rise in the historiography of national histories, right? We want to explain the origin of of Belarus, we want to explain the origin of Georgia or Chechnya, Chechnya national identity, and you know, pick whenever you want that these identities formed, but it doesn't mean necessarily that they played a direct role, a long-term role in the collapse of the Soviet Union. It just right, means yeah. that, it means that, for example, in Latvia and in Estonia, you uh, it was a lot easier for American propaganda to enter into those places that emphasized ethnic particularism, right? So that, uh, you know, by the time you get, um, by the time you get to, uh, 1987, 88, one of the major arguments coming out of the Baltic States is we want control of our own natural resources. And we don't know why our resources are going to Russia or, Anywhere else in the Soviet Union, they should be staying here. I mean, mm-hmm. that is the most Western, neoliberal, like form of thinking that you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, and it's there's no coincidence that those are the states that border Western Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. And there and there's there's no mistake that it's also the same time in which organizations like Greenpeace are beginning to have presence in the Soviet Union. Environmental politics themselves. Starting to have presence in the Soviet Union, so all these Western influences are yeah. are like kind of identifying that ethnic aspect of the Soviet Union and just kind of Honing tweaking right it as much, as they, can, yeah. as, much yeah. as they can, as much yeah. as they can. Almost yeah. like if somebody did that in the United States, if somebody were able to come in the United States and really intensify uh, ethnic relations in the United States mm-hmm. as a means yeah. of saying, uh, you know massachusetts should be separate from new hampshire because they vote differently they have a different ethnic makeup than new hampshire uh and massachusetts wants control over its seaports or something like that yeah um but so like like i said lewin is right in my view lewin is closer to the truth of collapse when he's talking about pedestroika in particular Mm -hmm. um the the kind of like Exchange between Gorbachev and and civil society, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um there's a yeah, there's a yeah. there's a push and pull between the two of them. But with the long durée stuff, I think that he's kind of he's missed the mark a little bit.
4: Yeah, yeah, it's like he uh, he tries for a long time to just build up sort of why it is that like society itself and like the people of the Soviet Union would like develop sort of like their own like kind of like power structures. And, and like you know eventually and like he he tackles a bunch of stuff with this you know uh, going into even talking about like um like birth rates and gentrification and stuff like that in the cities but it, it's all like in preparation for yeah once he gets to Gorbachev and perestroika and talk about how now these power these like sort of power centers in civil society were able to exert pressure on the party and that Gorbachev at the top of the party felt the need to respond to them you know. He also tries to tie it to, like, Khrushchev, too, with, like, Khrushchev's de-Stalinization and how, you know, it already happened in the Soviet Union that, um, the leader of the party had, uh, you know, gone through reforms based on, um, civil trends.
0: Um, I was going to point out that in 1989 1990 I mean my, my research focuses on Leningrad in particular in in the late Soviet period uh, and in 1988 1990 the the I don't not in 1988 1989 but in 1990 definitely the you know majority of candidates promoted to local legislative office um, Identify as the Democratic ticket as opposed yeah. to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, but in 1989, uh, to the People's uh, Deputies positions of the USSR, the Communist Party sweeps. I mean, they they do they do get some heavy losses, uh, but they still sweep. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's a big thing in the West that Soviet elections weren't fair, uh, that they were rigged. But the fact is that by 1989, 1990, those elections are open. Uh, and they're right. they are they're not based on uh, as they were previously or as the party wanted them to be based on workplace uh, elections used to be based on uh, your workplace and yeah, yeah. your work district which meant that your bosses for lack of a better word had a huge influence on who you voted for and that's how the party influenced the vote previously mm-hmm. but my 1989, 1990 that wasn't going on anymore and right. so yeah. So the fact that the Communist Party is still winning, or that the, quote, democratic ticket, which could still incorporate socialists, right? Yeah, it just yeah. it just was a more Gorbachevian socialist uh, way, uh, are still sweeping elections. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, well, so that brings me to the point that I was going to make. I And, I mean, we're already at over an hour, right? So we, we, <laughs> we, I feel like this could be a really long one. We don't need to go that crazy. But I feel like yeah. we would be remiss not to discuss, uh, since we've sort of danced around it a little bit, I think we should talk a little bit about, about Gorbachev and about uh, Glasnost and Perestroika. Um, because I think those tend to be the sort of fundamental common lines between all of the different approaches to trying to understand Soviet collapse. Everybody sort of comes back to, whether they're praising him or, or knocking him, everybody sort of comes back to Gorbachev, right? And sort of, yeah. for better or worse, kind of squarely places the blame uh, for the collapse of the Soviet Union at his feet. Um, and something that Evan and I were talking about earlier that we thought was really fascinating is that despite the sort of fundamental differences in you know, Kotkin and Lewin's approaches, um, they both sort of have this really obvious admiration of Gorbachev. Um, something that I found really kind of frustrating but interesting is that throughout his narrative, Kotkin continually refers to Gorbachev as like both a, strate- a strategic genius and like a political, like Wunderkind, but also like... A kind of a bumbling idiot who just like accidentally dismantled the the Soviet <laughs> Union, and it's like how yeah. how how can you be both? But it seems like there is this really genuine sort of admiration of of him as a man and as a politician um, from both of these these writers. Um, and I don't know. I just I guess I just wonder what you think of of that. What you think of Gorbachev's role in Soviet collapse, and how seriously should we? As people studying this, how seriously should we take this notion that you know, despite all of these other you know potential compounding issues, uh, ultimately um, this is the guy that did it. This is the guy that brought about Soviet collapse. Mm-hmm.
0: Reluctantly, I don't. I don't think that he purposefully did it. Um, no right. There, there is no doubt that Glasnost and Perestroika open the floodgates for yeah. for certain things in the Soviet Union. There's, you, there's just no way to, to deny it. You just see it everywhere, compounded by the Chernobyl nuclear disaster and the, yeah. the domestic and international effects that that had, and especially in terms of triggering uh, popular environmentalism, which kind of reigned supreme everywhere during Petashvika. Uh it, it is funny the way that Kotkin talks about Gorbachev, because it is almost like, I like this guy because he's responsible for collapse. So you know, <laughs> yeah, like, right. I like it. I like him in sort of an evil way. Whereas yeah. Moisei Lewin seems more open to recognizing that Go- the place of Gorbachev was uh, extremely difficult. Right?
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, Gorbachev was and still is uh, a a socialist. He he always has right. been. Um, and he found himself inheriting a country where, as you said, is facing those economic pressures, uh, is face, facing certain social pressures, and so he knew that it had to be reformed in some way.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, did that mean that it had to be reformed and socialism had to collapse? Not necessarily. It just meant yeah. that somehow culture had to had to catch up to uh, economic. Development, or maybe the reverse. Economic and social development had to catch up to world culture, globalization, all these things that were going on that the Soviet Union was sort of behind on, that it, that it just couldn't, couldn't catch up on. I mean, like, something as simple as uh, household washing machines... You know, not everyone had them by 1986, but everybody in the United States had them. And everybody, mm-hmm. you know, uh, simple things like that—that that, uh, blue jeans and bubble gum—that Russians were looking at and saying, "Why the hell don't we have these things?" Right? You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and why is this ideology holding us back from having it? We can have it. And so, yeah. Gorbachev's role in this was to try to bring about a socialist way of. Catching culture up, catching Soviet culture up to the rest of the world, and if you read his speeches and if you read his impetus for doing it, um, he sees it as fundamentally Leninist, right? He's always quoting Lenin. Branted, right. Granted, all the general secretaries are always quoting Lenin. There's, the, there's, a cult, <laughs> yeah, sure. there's a cult of Lenin, but but he he gives a a reasonable and a and a believable argument that my effort at at, uh reform is something is Leninist in principle, right? Mm-hmm. If you think of something like NEP and the way that Lenin was able to kind of recognize the need to back off for a second, Gorbachev mm-hmm. in Pedestroika is seeing the same thing, I think, that there there's a need to back off for a little bit and allow culture to to, to progress, allow society to progress with it. Um, but does that mean that Gorbachev the the man is responsible for the collapse of socialism not necessarily because uh as you pointed out yeltsin himself Mm uh is a populist uh he's he's pushed and promoted by the west uh in the presidential elections as are you know uh as is anatoly Sobchek in leningrad the other major city uh as are as are most of the Political leaders that emerge in the Baltic, in the in the Western European states, in Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, in Belarus, etc. And so uh, there is definitely an extent to which Gorbachev kind of released the the pressure valve. But you know uh, that release uh, doesn't really do much if there's no steam in the pressure valve, right?
4: Right.
3: That's an awesome way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I mean, and so that's, I mean, in talking about this prior to the show, Evan and I both sort of were just kind of discussing, you know, our, just our take, right? Because so much of this mm-hmm. episode and the research for this episode kind of had nothing to do with, like, what he and I thought. And I think it's probably safe to mm-hmm. say that anybody who's listened to either of our podcasts can kind of guess, like, where we personally fall on a lot of these issues. Um, yeah. It's just been really compelling to kind of look at, you know, both of the the prevalent sides here. But um I find it really hard not to believe that that Gorbachev didn't have a totally benevolent and um,
4: oh yeah for sure yeah, uh,
3: yeah. ideologically sound intention um, in implementing a lot of these reforms. You know, and and you're you're absolutely right. Like Kotkin definitely does sort of paint him as uh, like yeah, I like him because he he dismantled this like obviously flawed thing. But it's like I, I really don't think that that's how Gorbachev saw it. And I no, he I, just I, got I agree owned. that <laughs> yeah, well he kind of did get owned, but I. I <laughs> I, I don't I I, I truly believe uh, that he saw what he was doing as uh, as righteous and as as furthering the cause of socialism and allowing, as you said, socialism to sort of enter into the modern world, not necessarily fade away, but just stay relevant and stay um, a part of society that that, you know, people could look to to provide them with the various sundries and necessities that they saw the rest of the world suddenly in possession of. Um, mm-hmm. And it really does seem like they're more of the blame. I mean, to me, it seems like more of the blame should really rest squarely at the feet of uh, some of these other players, right? Like like Boris Yeltsin, who mm-hmm. it really seems in hindsight, we're kind of ready uh, at any moment to sort of sell, sell the entire nation down the river. To make a buck and mm-hmm. to to find themselves in in more of a position to to benefit, right? And mm-hmm. the fact that Gorbachev was sort of unwilling to play their own game, you know, as sort of aggressively as they were playing it, um, only seems to have hurt him and hurt his cause. Um, I don't know how legitimate that that <laughs> rings, but that's definitely sort of been my takeaway. Is like you have this guy who's this sort of bastion of. of sort of benevolent socialist thought and and is trying his best to find a way to keep that way of life relevant and successful and he's just almost like surrounded by wolves who are like opportunistically willing to kind of do whatever they have to do to 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 just get something out of it
4: you know yeah I mean at that point like the leaders in the communist party they uh uh, a lot for a lot of it, it seems like the 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 ideology they had become apathetic towards, it, and that really, uh, you know, it was more about the bureaucracy at that point than you know actually like communist or like Marxist Leninist ideology. Um, but uh, I did also do like you know you mentioned Chernobyl before too, and I know that like Gorbachev himself has said that that was, you know, the the Chernobyl disaster was like a, a big event for him, and I I do like that in uh, Levine's book he says you know, by the time that Gorbachev was in power, you know, the state was, like, so developed and, like, like it could, like, achieve so much, but it was also just so inept also in certain ways. And in the, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency report on Chernobyl, it concluded that there were grave and flagrant errors that caused the accident, but once the accident occurred, the problems were tackled with great intelligence and a tremendous amount of muscle.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean... I mean, like, like this is also something that I'm working on in my own work because so much of Western historiography that talks about Soviet technology and science, again, reads that declensionist narrative that, uh, you know, there's there's literally a history of Soviet nuclear power that is like, uh, you know, I forget exactly what it's called, but its subtitle is the pre-Chernobyl history of Soviet nuclear power. You're already embedding a disaster into yeah. your narrative, right? In your in your timeline. Uh, when, when in fact like Soviet science and technology was really good. Uh right. in a in a lot of they were they were the first to space as you know, as yeah, any that, Russian yeah, would tell you. Exactly, yeah. Um uh but I, I I think to get back to, to Gorbachev, um, Yeah, I you're right to point out that by this time. Soviet ideology, communist, Soviet Marxism is sort of reified both in the bureaucracy and mm-hmm. also in civil society. There's a great book by Alexei Yurchak, which I love to cite, uh, called mm-hmm. Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More. And the mm-hmm. argument of that book is literally in the title, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, people literally woke up one morning and, uh, the Soviet Union was no more, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it and it wasn't even something that they woke up and were like, "Oh no, my life is over." It was kind of something that they woke up and were like, "Oh, okay,
4: that <laughs> kind of makes yeah. sense," right?
0: It's like gotta they go to work. <laughs> they, yeah, they, I still have to go to work. I still I still uh, what do I do with all this ideology that I learned in school? Now does it matter anymore? You know, uh. probably not. But the fact is that you know from the seventies. Through the 80s, the rituals of being uh, a member of the Communist Party or a a citizen of the Soviet Union are just that. They're rituals that people, you know, it's like like we're in grade school and we have to stand for the American flag and, you know, do the Pledge of Allegiance and all that stuff. It's like, unless you were like me and said no, then most people... (laughs) Most people just do it kind of reflexively, not even thinking about it. You know, they yeah, just, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like, all right, I, I know I have to do this. I don't understand why I have to do this, but I'll do yeah. it anyway, you know? And that's how Soviet ideology became, uh, over time, so, so kind of reified that um, people did still believe in socialism. They understood mm-hmm. what socialism was. Right. They wanted socialism, but they kind of just you know weren't surprised when it disappeared
2: yeah yeah
4: yeah, they like he talks in the book too about how like in the classes uh for like you know school and like college and stuff like that there were like marxism classes but that they would oftentimes just be dictated and that there was like very little discussion so like so it's like kind of just like a thing that that you did in school you know
0: right
3: Yeah, I mean the 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 big analog that I kept thinking of um throughout sort of reading about this is to you know, the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, right? Which is the sort of benchmark <laughs> imperial collapse that people look at when they look at history and, and, and some massively influential society sort of ceasing mm-hmm. to exist. And, and what I keep thinking is like in that collapse where people tend to look at it as like, okay, after the last Western emperor fell, there was no more Rome, right? And from a a geopolitical standpoint, that might be true. But for the people on the ground living in the various Roman provinces and in Rome itself, like not much changed from, you know, the last day of Roman imperium to, you know, the first day of, you know, the Dark Ages. Um, Things are much more gradual than that. Right. And I do think that, that the fall of the Soviet Union was much more defined, and just by virtue of the way that you know, communication had changed in the last 2,000 years, things obviously move at a faster pace, but I do still think that there's, there's something there, right? Like, like yeah, you were the, saying, the like...
4: the bureaucracies remain.
3: Right, the bureaucracies yeah. remain, and for your average person on the ground, it's like, yeah, one day you wake up and like the Soviet Union's not there, and you're like, I guess that makes sense, like, they kind of haven't been what they used to be for a while... Uh, but now I just have to sort of contend with this new set of people yeah. who ostensibly are just taking their place. And um, I, I don't really know what my point is there. I just find that <laughs> comparison interesting. And I think that it's easy to forget um, when you're looking at these massive events, like, just how uh, mundane a lot of this might seem to, like, your average citizen compared to, like, our big, you know, histori- historiographical uh explorations of of these massive events. Um,
2: I also think
0: that, uh, I mean, like, yeah, yes, I mean, history and historical events usually aren't the big bang that are, like, written in the textbooks and stuff like that, but um, more gradual processes. and. The same thing applies. Even though, like you said, communications are better and, and news is spread more. I mean, the same thing happens still in the Soviet Union because after after Russia dissolves the Soviet Union, uh, all of the state property that is sold is sold to familiar faces. It's still people. Right, yeah. It's still people that that, Ru- that the average Russian in Leningrad or Moscow or Svidlovsk or wherever they still know these people. It's the same. Right. Bureaucrats that existed all along, or maybe just a few new politicians that came from law faculties in their local university or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, So, I mean, and I and I think that a lot of the reason why so many people in the West admired admired and admired Gorbachev is first knowing the sort of balancing act that he tried to do, but then also. Knowing or being able to back off when when, you know, it was just clear that I can't save it anymore. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, even if even if we're not happy with the result and we know that, you know, Yeltsin was not nearly what he promised to be for Russia. uh, We still see that Gorbachev at a certain point just said, all right, I'm (laughs) Yeah, my role here is done. You know, yeah. Russia, Russia, the Soviet Union is uh, dissolved. That only leaves the Russian Federation. Boris Yeltsin is the president elected to the Russian Federation. And that means my role here is done. General secretaryship is no more. He could have cracked yeah. down, right? He could have said yeah, yeah. thanks like he did in Hungary or Poland. Yeah. Uh, or like not he did, but like his predecessor yeah, did. Right. Um, but he didn't. He yeah. just said, okay. Is it. Yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah, specifically when like the states started like uh, you know claiming their independence. Yeah, he didn't he didn't send in the red army to uh to any of those, you know, uh, other Soviet yeah. republics. It was just okay, you know, it's happening.
0: Some yeah. people do point to uh like uh you know, Putin was in East Germany during the collapse of the Berlin Wall and stuff like that and they'd say like the same thing. There there were um Riotous acts that happened in the Baltic states around mm-hmm. uh, secession, but but those were Russian agents and Russian military personnel that were there when it was happening. you know yeah. so so whether or not their their reaction and their orders came directly from Moscow is another story. It's just the basic fact that this country just seceded from the Soviet Union, and so now we don't mm-hmm. know what the hell we're doing here right. uh, mm-hmm. And then all of these people all these Latvians or Estonians who are angry at ethnic Russians now are all looking at us. And so right, yeah. what are we going to do? We have to react some you way. Know? Yeah.
3: yeah. yeah. That's, I think one of the things that really made me laugh uh, in kind of a, a, maybe like a caustic laughter uh, reading Kotkin is it's another thing that he kind of repeats uh, ad nauseum. He's really surprised uh, at the restraint of the the Soviet military apparatus uh, as things are sort of falling apart around them, um, and I, I remember there's this specific passage uh, I think in chapter three or chapter four where he talks about like how you know the uh, the briefcase with the sort of uh, button or whatever to to initiate launching of nuclear weapons was stripped from uh, Gorbachev and from the Communist Party officials and then both there were you know two of them like you see in the movies and they're both in the hands of, of the military chief of staff and Kotkin is like you know he he could have he could have just launched nukes you know he he was pretty pretty distraught I don't I don't understand why he didn't just launch nukes and it's like bro this isn't a James Bond movie like yeah, that would- and there's just all these repeated references to like it, you know, he actually makes the case that something that could have potentially preserved the Soviet Union would have been like a massive, violent crackdown from the top in some of these republics as they were attempting to secede. And it's like, wow, man, what a what a as you said, like what a what an authoritarian view on things like.
4: Yeah,
3: it's pretty clear that that's not at, at least by the 80s. Like, that's not what we're dealing with anymore when we're talking about um Gorbachev and those under him like these aren't those guys like he wasn't um inclined to massacre everyone living in these republics at the expense of you know allowing them the opportunity to sort of go their own way like it's like okay if that's if if you want to pursue this independently that's sort of in keeping with the ideas of glasnost and perestroika you know maybe it's a little more advanced than he intended for things to go but I just thought it was really interesting that, that Kotkin keeps sort of coming back to the point that, like, yeah, and, you know, for whatever reason, they, they didn't send the troops in. They, yeah, they like, didn't yeah, just
0: kill every Latvian. Yeah, I, <laughs> I wonder why. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because he's coming from that tradition, that right. totalitarian uh, tradition that right. wants to read that kind of state violence into it, where the the fact of the matter is that, like, uh, Stalin Stalinism was a very scary... In violent time i mean Mm -hmm. there there are a lot of leftists that are like trying to revive stalin right now yeah (laughs) Um, but the basic fact is that you know even though industrialism happened even though it was a success it still came at a massive cost um to people and uh what happens is soviet history is read through stalinism as Mm -hmm. if as if because what happened under stalin kind of determine the rest of the course of history despite de uh despite years of Brezhnev uh and even despite the fact that you know besides the hanging order there's very little evidence that Lenin was even that violent um yeah yeah I I, I think he's pretty above reproach
2: yeah
4: well. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny, you know, because like what you're saying about that that entire idea of, like, the totalitarian nature of the Soviet state. Uh, Like, uh, last year, I read um, The Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins, which is just about, you know, the anti-communist crusade of the United States, and there's a point in it that he cites, I think it's from, like, some Cambridge journal, where uh, between the years of 1960 and 1990, the United States killed more people in Latin America alone than... The entirety of the Warsaw Pact killed, like right. in general, <laughs> just like in general, and it's like you know that's like you know you kind of have to like stop thinking about like this you know the Soviet Union and those Eastern Bloc states like that you know.
0: Sometimes tanks marching down the street aren't as bad as soldiers putting a bullet in the back of your head, right? Right. I mean, yeah. there's, there's that there's that image of Soviet tanks rolling through <laughs> Hungary, uh, yeah, yeah, but like. Is that really as bad as what the United States did in Central yeah, and South squads. America? <laughs> yeah, yeah just know.
4: sending death squads through, like, you know, Chile and uh, Honduras and shit, you know? It makes you
3: think of that, that Mitchell and Webb sketch where it's like, Klaus, are we the baddies? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Did you notice we've got skulls on our hats? Like, <laughs> um, so I know we've gone on for a while here, and we've obviously gotten more notes than we're going to read through. But, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I guess in parting, right, because I I, want to let you go. I know you've got a lot going on. Um, What what do you think is... uh, So obviously, you know, we enjoy reading about this, right? But I feel like this is a really underrepresented topic and period of time in, let's say, American classrooms or even, you know, independent study with people just going out, buying a book and reading something for pleasure. Not a lot of people around in the U.S. know about this. Um, what would you say to those people and like why do you find, if you can sum this up, why do you find this subject so valuable and, and what do you think is the important, the, the big important takeaway that people can take from studying this?
0: Well, um, the first reason is, you know, as I said I think in the beginning that socialism is kind of back in uh, the—I don't know if it's the mainstream, but it's it's at least back in vogue with certain crowds, right? The the amount of the amount that socialism has come back into the popular American discourse since Bernie Sanders has run uh, is probably looks like the same bell curve of the CO two emissions that happened since nineteen (laughs) forty five, and so, you know, in the world, we have limited examples of actual existing socialism, uh, and the Cold War always argued that, well, what's going on in the Soviet Union is not actual existing socialism. It's, it's a socialist ideological state that's striving for existing socialism, but it's not there yet, uh, and I think that studying this in general is important because, A, it gives us perspective into the efforts of another socialist project. Uh, it gives us a window into the successes and the failures of the socialist project. The things that ultimately brought it down, I think, are important to any kind of socialist project we might envision for the future, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that it gives us just another perspective on the world and on geopolitics. You know, there's, uh, how many times in this episode have we compared. The Soviet Union to the United States, what it's done in the past or what it's doing now. Uh, I think that there's so many analogies to be drawn between, you know, uh, uh, two ideologically driven states. It used to, it used to be that people believed that the United States wasn't ideologically driven, but but now yeah. we all kind of know that neoliberalism is its own ideology. Right. right. Yeah, it's, an, exactly. it, it's an ideology without a communal endpoint. That socialism has, but it's still an ideology sure and so yeah, yeah, yeah and so I think that studying the way that the Soviet Union operated under a different ideology again paying attention to those successes and those failures because there were enormous successes in the Soviet Union universal health care pensions mm-hmm. for everyone guaranteed employment uh, housing even though it wasn't always the best still guaranteed for everyone all mm-hmm. of these things are like massive successes that yeah. If, if we let that history slip, then what we're told by American conservatives or the, the new right or whatever that, mm-hmm. that, you know, socialism never worked, it's always failed and, and it led to Stalinism, yada yada, like this is the narrative that we're given. But we can actually yeah, yeah. show them that, act, well, in fact, that's not true. It just, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of influences that went on at the time from the inside, from the outside. There's change over time. There's local contingencies versus just Moscow. There's a whole bunch of dynamics to consider about the whole thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's my spiel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, man, we really
3: appreciate your spiel. I think this was fascinating, and I think it's pretty clear that we could certainly pick your brain for another... Easily another hour and a half about this, but uh, I feel like this is probably a reasonable uh, point for us <laughs> to kind of wrap things up because yeah, uh, about an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we yeah, definitely well, hit it. It flew by. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for being with yeah. us, man. We we really appreciate it, and uh, uh, that was definitely one of one of the most interesting. The research was interesting, but but you know having you on yeah. and having your take on some of the stuff is is definitely one of the more interesting experiences we've had doing this. We really appreciate your uh, your willingness to, to come on. Yeah,
0: those are my those are my hot takes. There's a lot of
3: <laughs> there's a lot
0: of uh, historians of Russia and the Soviet Union who who uh, maybe wouldn't agree with everything, but. You know my my generalization is just to say that well they're not socialists and so there's a lot of there's right. a lot uh, there's a lot about socialist identity socialist theory that yes. that you have to consider when thinking about the Soviet Union um, that right. if you haven't
3: read at least Whoa! Hey, it's Cam. Uh, breaking the, the fourth wall here a little bit. Um, this is like a little editor's addendum. Um, so this is like our uh, luckily like our only moment of audio difficulty. Uh, Alex's mic cuts out for a second, um, and I just don't have a recording of it. But he he says uh, if you haven't read at least the first you know volume of Capital or Chapital, Capital Capital Capital. Uh, if you haven't read Capital, then you know you might not necessarily agree with some of his takes. Um, anyway, that's it. Back to the show. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. There's there's a very different approach when you're looking at it as someone with this sort of hopeful uh, ideal, right, of like, okay, like you said before, like, these are these are successes and failures that we need to examine if we're going to think about a successful socialist project in the future versus someone who's coming in already with this notion of this being like, you know, a flawed it concept and yeah. right, right. Like you hear socialism and you think like bad, Socialism bad. bad. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a very different, right? So um, I think it's really important to hear voices. Uh, I mean, obviously as we sort of did with this episode, it's kind of important to be aware of voices on both sides, but uh, I certainly know which, which approach I yeah. uh, prefer. So it's it's been great. Um, before we wrap things up, is there Evan? Did you want to add something? I'm
0: sorry.
4: No, no. I was just gonna say, uh, Alex, you got you got some plugs that you wanna you wanna put in.
0: Uh, yeah, sure. My my personal Twitter is I think a Herbert forty five something like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't I couldn't get my my name in there unfortunately, or like or like I didn't understand Twitter when I set it up, and so yeah, I just yeah. like picked a random thing. But now it's too late. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the podcast on Twitter is uh, at PLRPodcast. And then on Instagram, it's at PLRPod, or the reverse, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. But yeah, follow along and, and listen, especially if you're in the uh, southern New England area. We, we focus on, on full episodes, we focus on things going on in, in Providence, in, in Rhode Island, uh, and then we spotlight mutual aid. So we have interviewees come on that are part of some kind of mutual aid organization, or outreach organization, or even just a, a leftist political party. We've had the Ocean State Green Party on. We've had people from the PSL on. So you know, yeah, to
2: that one the other
0: yep. we we try to have we try to spotlight local initiatives that are going on because you know, as I think I mentioned a lot in this episode, the local dynamics are so important to me and, yeah, and sure. uh and that's where that's where a lot of policy gets made
4: yeah yeah i agree 100 percent. yeah know, i'm uh, i'm involved with local politics here in southeastern massachusetts and uh yeah i mean really building from the ground up i think is is the right way to go about this
0: cool well thanks for having me on it's been a lot awesome. of fun
4: yeah really thank yeah. you so much
3: for coming on we appreciate it
0: all right
4: yeah. all
3: right hey take it easy all
4: right thanks very much alex
3: Alright everybody, thank you so much for listening We'll have all the links to Alex's stuff As well as our stuff in the pod notes um, As always, we appreciate you guys Tuning in this week And uh, hopefully we'll see you again next time For another episode of Left Unread.
2: Follow the don't Down to Konkipa. we could be so close like brand